Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz saxophonist Rich Holly. He talked to Neon Jazz about his latest record, 2016's The Outlier. It's a great listen. This Oregon bass cat has been turning out smart, brawny music for a couple of decades. At the age of 15, he discovered jazz and immediately became interested in it. Since then, he's gone on to some great adventures. In the 60s, he played and lived in Cairo, Egypt, went to the University of Chicago, and then moved back west to play in Latin bands. He was educated as a field biologist and received a Master of Science in Biology from the University of New Mexico to do research on rattlesnakes. This is just a bit about a cat that you should get to know with many tales and adventures. So dig this interview my friends thank you for taking the time out and thank you for sending the album over it's a great list and i appreciate it oh good thanks glad you liked it um so let me go ahead and ask you this talk to me about the album i know that you have Vinny on it you have a great lineup of musicians on it give me an idea about how you feel about this album and kind of the creative forces that went into creating this you know i've been playing with all these people actually for a long time uh vinnie was actually in my band back in the 90s and I've known him since the 80s. And the rest of the folks in the band, we've released six recordings as a quartet, I believe. And actually, I've played with everybody going back before that, in most cases, almost 20 years. So musically and otherwise, we know each other very well. So we've kind of developed a way of playing together, basically. And so we'd been doing, you know, like I said, a bunch of quartet records. And I thought maybe it was time to kind of change that up a little bit. I've had bands previously where I had more horns, and it's fun to do that because it gives you a lot of uh, new possibilities. There's, you can do a lot more with harmony if you have a third voice. It's easier to have independent uh, counter patterns going on in the writing and so on. And plus, I knew Vinny's a great player. So we just decided to have Vinny uh, be on this recording, and actually we've played a played a couple of gigs since then and those have been really fun as well so that's that's kind of how it transpired so how do you feel about the album now that it's out oh i'm very happy with it i think it came out well you know i think there's good playing and i think the compositions came out pretty well i've spent a lot of time mixing it trying to make sure that all the parts were kind of audible to the uh advantage of the music you know to make sure that it's mixed right to bring out all the all the aspects of the music and i think i think that occurred so let me ask you this i'm going to go back in your life a little bit how do you become a musician coming from a father that was an economics professor and a mother that was a reading a special ed teacher well i'll, I'll make it real simple we never had really a record player until i was about 15 we got a kind of a basic stereo before that it was mostly just like the radio and as soon as we got the record player we started you know buying some lps and stuff and uh, i thought gee i think i'll get some jazz records because i played clarinet and i was starting to play the saxophone and so i thought you know i want to get some of this stuff i bet it's interesting and as soon as i got a few good records, it was like, yeah, this is what I, I really want to do this. It just kind of happened naturally. You hear the music and you go, I love this stuff. This is what I want to do. Right on. Well, and it says a lot of your influences was, you know, obviously Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Dexter Gordon, Ornette Coleman. So all of those early jazz albums, out of all of those, which one really hit you the most? Oh, I don't know that I can name a single thing, you know, because it was such a long, it's a long process. 
But some of the early records, the very first ones that I got when I was like 15 or 16 were like uh, Coltrane Live at Birdland, uh, Sonny Rollins, The Bridge, uh, some Miles. I think I had Seven Steps to Heaven at the time and, you know, some Charlie Parker stuff. And actually also an Ornette Coleman record, the one called Ornette that has Scott LaFaro on it. So I got those all about the same time when I was like 16 years old. And that kind of set me on a path. And then over the years, I've listened to all kinds of other stuff, of course. That was some early thing, some early things that uh, maybe were formative. You know, the one thing that stands out in your bio and your life journey in music and, and, and beyond is you travel quite a bit. One trip, several trips I want to ask you about, but from 65 to 66, you went to Cairo, Egypt. What was it like to play in a band out there? Oh, it was cool. We played, it was kind of, you know, I was young, of course. I was 18 years old. We played this kind of mix of international music. We played, you know, some pop tunes because we were playing like for, you know, parties and things like that. We did a couple of concerts too. But so we did some kind of Western pop tunes, you know, like rock things. We did some jazz tunes. We did some standards. We did actually a few European pop tunes, which I had had no exposure to, but there was a guy in the band that was French, and so we did a few of those. And we even did a couple of uh, uh, kind of Arabic uh, popular tunes that were uh, you know, popular in Egypt. So it was just this mix of all this different stuff and all these different cultures. Cairo is a very fairly diverse city in addition to, of course, the Egyptians, and everybody speaks Arabic. There are lots of uh, Italians and French and Greeks there and uh, a lot of international people. So it was very interesting in that there were a lot of different cultures represented. So after you get down in Cairo in your lineage, you go to University of Chicago, then you make your way back to the West Coast. What was it like to get back to the West Coast and what was kind of going on during that period for you? Well, I loved being in Chicago for the music. I'm really not a big city person in a way. Uh, I really like the outdoors. I'm really, I've spent a lot of time in my life, you know, out in the mountains and out in nature. I mean, I'm a biologist by education. And so I kind of just got to a point where I wanted to get out of the city. And I went, I went back to the Northwest and I did spend a lot of time out in the mountains. I started doing a lot of climbing. I was still playing, but I was doing a lot of other things in addition to music. And that's basically why I came back. And I also wanted to kind of work with my, understand a little bit about my Northwest roots and understand kind of what was there a little bit more. How does that influence your music-loving nature as much as you do? I mean, traveling all around and being more into the nature, how does that influence how you approach music? It probably doesn't influence it so much in a conscious sense, but I kind of go back to the, you know, the Charlie Parker comment, if you don't live it, it won't come out your horn. And I guess what I'd say is that uh, the way you live, that feeling, it does come out. It comes, you are what you are. And when you play, that comes out through your music. It's not necessarily a conscious process. It's just that you can't help being who you are. And that's a big part of who I am. So it does influence it, but it's not like I sit around and think about it. Uh, conceptually very much. I just do stuff. So you're a field biologist. You did a lot of research on rattlesnakes, and you've also spent a long time in information technology. That, that's a pretty eclectic mix along with being a musician. 
How do all of those work together as a whole organism for you? You know, a lot of this stuff is just practical. I did kind of spend a little bit of time trying to get a job in biology about the time that uh, my son Carson was uh, on the way. I was thinking I was going to have to get some sort of a day job and be able to support the whole family. Uh, I looked for some jobs in biology, but they were pretty difficult to come by in Portland where I was living. And so I kept, in those days, the one ads were in the papers. And I keep looking in the paper. And what did I see? There's all these jobs for computer programmers. There's lots of them. And so I was never really all that interested in it But before that. But I thought, well... I imagine I can do that, so I went and took a few courses at the local community college, kind of got a start in programming, and then uh, managed to get myself a job, and from there I just kind of worked my way up through it. So it was not something that I did because it was part of a plan. It was a pragmatic way to make sure I could support my family. So we kind of mentioned some of these early jazz musicians that influenced you after you were 15 and the albums that you got. But let me get kind of mystical on you a little bit here and ask you, if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see somebody somewhere, where would you go? If you had the DeLorean, you could punch in the digits, where are you going? See, I really like the, the, the tradition. You know, a couple of the periods that I thought about, I'd love to be there at the very beginnings of bebop, you know, in 1944, 1945, see the stuff that was happening then, because that music really influenced me. I really listened a lot to Bird when I was uh, first uh, learning about the music. You know, he's one of the the biggest influences, you know, probably the greatest soloist ever in jazz and just incredibly brilliant man. The other time that, that I find kind of interesting is uh, back, you know, in the beginning of the 30s when Louis Armstrong was really coming into his own as a soloist and Ellington's band was really starting to kind of make waves and he was starting to write all these compositions. I think it would have been cool to have seen that. Plus, the world was so different then. It would have been, yeah. uh, it would have been amazing. Absolutely. So for someone that's dedicated so much of your life to jazz and all of that that goes into listening and, and performing jazz, why do you love jazz? Because the way it feels, yeah. I mean, I guess, and 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 it's not strictly just the way it feels. Plus, there's an intellectual basis that supports that. For music to be really interesting, like art level music that's complex, you have to have both the feeling level, and you also have to have the sort of structural intellectual level that makes it interesting and those things combine to create something greater and i really found that in jazz for for me jazz just kind of i don't know i feel like the expression of that expresses who i am that's why i was originally attracted to it so for 19 plus albums all of the places that you've been to and delivered music to fans what's one of the nicest things that anybody has ever said to you about your music you know, I don't know. I, anytime somebody comes up and says, you know, wow, I really like that, and that such and such a tune that you just played was really cool. I mean, that's enough for me. Basically, you know, music is about communication. And so when my music affects people and they get something out of it, then that makes me happy. Speaking of conversation, you know, jazz is, at the end of the day, especially in a live environment, it's a conversation between musicians and with the audience. If you had to kind of boil down the essence of what you do with your instrument, what are you saying? What's your communication? 
Well, I'm not sure that I can put it into words because instrumental music is essentially nonverbal. The basis of it is telling a story. And all the old guys talked about telling a story. From Louis Armstrong up, you know, when they when people talk about, especially as a soloist, since I'm a horn player, when you play a solo, you're trying to tell a story. And actually, as a band leader, as a composer, you try and set up the composition, and I write for the musicians I'm playing with, you're trying to utilize their strengths, so that the composition, the solos, the improvisation, the group improvisation, and all of it tells one big story, and that story should have an emotional curve to it. Uh, and that's, I think, what what gets through to people. So that's what that's what I'm trying to do, I guess, really, is to tell a story. Perfect. You know, everybody has their interpretation of, of who you are. Um, your family, your friends, the critics, like Downbeat said, you're an organ-based saxophonist who has been turning out smart, brawny music for a couple of decades. All the fans that you play for have their interpretation. But who do you think you are? When you wake up in the morning and you face the world and live your life, who are you? I'm just me. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really have some sort of big construct. You know, my goals in music are to produce some good music and to make that available to other people. It's one of the reasons why recordings are important to me. Since I live in Portland, I'm not getting to play for large audiences on a frequent basis. I mean, if I was living in some bigger cities, I would get to play a little more frequently and probably for larger audiences. But I want to get the music out. It's my art. So that's really important to me. But at the same time, you know, all these other things, my family is really important to me. You know, living in the West and being out in nature and going out in the mountains and stuff, that's really important to me. It's a whole. I'm just a guy, and these are the things that I do. Yeah, right on. Rich, thank you for taking some time. Again, thank you for the music. I really appreciate it. I'm going to spin it on the program, and, and I appreciate your time and story. Okay, great. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it on your end as well, so thanks. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, New Mexico, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Rich for his time, his honesty, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can always visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.